reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. Gastric, or stomach cancer, is one of the most malignant human cancers, ranking third as the most common cause of cancer death globally. East Asia has the highest incidence, and China in specific accounts for almost half of new cases of gastric cancer worldwide. If detected at an early stage, treatments can control and even cure the disease. Unfortunately, most of the time, gastric cancer is usually diagnosed beyond the early stage. But we've made exciting advances in treating advanced gastric cancer with targeted drugs that disrupt signaling pathways and destroy cancer cells. Not only that, but the immunotherapies have changed the landscape of gastric cancer treatments and are providing new hope for improvements in survival. On today's show, we'll hear once again from Dr. Sam Klempner. He's a specialist in oncology and hematology with a focus on gastric and esophageal cancers at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He'll explain the risk factors for developing gastric cancer, how we might protect ourselves against this disease, talk about symptoms and staging, and then delve into current and future therapies that can prolong life. Aches and Gains is supported by Averitas Pharma, Daiichi Sankyo, and Heron Therapeutics. Dr. Sam Klempner is an associate professor of medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He specializes in treating gastric and esophageal cancers and conducts clinical trials and research on new targeted medications and immune therapies. Dr. Klempner, welcome back to Aches and Gains. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On our last show, we talked about some of the symptoms of gastric cancer, the epidemiology, several risk factors, and then touched on what can protect us from this disease. And specifically, we talked about fruits and vegetables, especially fruit that is probably protective against gastric cancer. And there are some studies that suggest diets that are low in citrus fruit have the strongest association with gastric cancer. I want to ask you, though, about cooked veggies versus uncooked veggies, because I read a study that that indicated that cooking vegetables doesn't offer the same protective effect as uncooked vegetables. <laughs> I've, I've, heard, I've seen that as well. Um, again, not, not my exact area of expertise, but I would hypothesize that it probably has to do with, you know, either denaturing or breaking up some of those potentially protective compounds during the, the cooking process. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it seems like veggies and fruits protect us against gastric cancer because of their vitamin C content. It's hypothesized that the vitamin C reduces the formation of carcinogenic 
N-nitroso compounds inside the stomach. Those nitroso compounds are uh, compounds that are produced after we consume nitrates that are natural components of vegetables and potatoes and are especially found in food additives. Could taking vitamin C then produce the same protective effect uh, as vegetables and fruits? This is a very good question and certainly a hot topic. You know, there, there have been trials looking at vitamin C um, in reducing the risk of cancer and also in patients with cancer. And we've yet to reliably show that taking high doses of vitamin C as a supplement itself can substantially reduce the risk of cancer. So I don't think we have any evidence to my knowledge that directly taking the vitamin C can confer the same protective as a diet that's just naturally rich in fruits and vegetables. Now, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, are commonly used for pain control. I read that they may reduce the risk of gastric cancer. What do we know about NSAIDs in this context? I've been involved in a relatively recent publication looking at a, a very large database. It does seem that people who are taking NSAIDs for other reasons, maybe uh, daily aspirin for primary prevention or secondary prevention of cardiac disease, mm -hmm. um, do seem to um, have this observation where the rates of stomach cancer are lower compared to patients who are not taking and, and otherwise try to match those patients. Seems to be associated with like, you know, 10 to 20% reduced risk of gastric cancer when you compare those two patient populations. Well, I mean, that's not insignificant. In our previous show, you alluded to gender differences in gastric cancer. You know, the incidence is lower in women than men worldwide, and the data suggests that hormones may have a protective role. So are, are women at lower risk of gastric cancer because of their reproductive hormones? And certainly it seems that there may be a protective uh, effect of female reproductive hormones. Mm -hmm. um, and there does seem to be some associations between the age of, of menopause or years of fertility um, and, and protective effect. I think it's a plausible hypothesis. Do we have any mechanism to prove this? And I think that I haven't seen that yet, but it's definitely a clear observation. Let's move on now to symptoms of stomach cancer. Abdominal pain is a common symptom, and abdominal pain is a type of visceral pain, which is often hard to pinpoint. But where do patients usually report the pain? I know you're very much an expert in this topic, but patients who have, you know, very proximal tumors right below the um, junction of the stomach and esophagus often have pain immediately following eating or trying to eat, and sometimes even pain with food passing and sticking from, like, direct effect on the tumor. Mm -hmm. uh, patients with more um, distal tumors, like near the duodenum at the very bottom of the stomach, can also have sort of obstructive-like symptoms and pain, uh, where after they eat, they feel both very full and bloated and have sort of midline upper abdominal pain. Yeah. Sometimes these tumors can get quite large and actually invade local structures next to the stomach and cause direct pain that way, especially near the area of the pancreas, which has a lot of, you know, nerve infiltration, as you well know. Mm -hmm. and, and what other symptoms do patients typically experience aside from pain? Uh, nausea is pretty common, sometimes actually throwing up and regurgitating food. Because the tumors often invade into the walls of the stomach, uh, bleeding is not uncommon at all. Mm -hmm. Fatigue related to anemia, seeing black stools um, from the blood breakdown, uh, and then Weight loss is probably another thing we often will see. Yeah. Uh, and this can be insidious, and it's tough when you see yourself every day 
to appreciate weight loss, but it's, it's often relative to come to visit three months later and then they say, oh man, you lost 25 or 30 pounds and, and they sort of tip people off that something's going on. Yeah, many might not realize that they're losing weight. Sam, in your experience, when you examine patients with stomach cancer, do you feel an abdominal mass? It's really, really rare that we would actually feel the primary tumor. Mm-hmm. There are some sort of telltale signs associated with advanced cancers and, and these are you know lymph nodes sort of right above the collarbone at the bottom of the neck. Mm-hmm. And also there's a classic lymph node right in the belly button, which is called the Sister of Mary Joseph lymph node. Right. Now, Dr. Klempner, if you suspect stomach cancer, what's the next step? So if you suspect gastric cancer, the primary step is an endoscopy, mm-hmm. you know, done by our GI colleagues, and that establishes the diagnosis from a tissue biopsy, most likely. Right. And then The immediate next question, and it's a very important part of our job as oncologists, is what is the extent of this tumor, both locally and distant? And this is the role of staging. And so um, to assess for distant disease, we primarily use CT or PET imaging or Mm -hmm. both. And Mm -hmm. to assess for local disease, primarily this is endoscopic ultrasound to look at the depth of invasion and, and nodes. And then there's a very important test that's often neglected in gastric cancer, which is diagnostic laparoscopy to really look at the peritoneum, which is not well seen on, on CT or PET. Okay, so initially patients would get an upper endoscopy with a biopsy, which is required for the diagnosis. Then they're going to get a CT scan, I think typically of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, along with a PET, PET scan, which uh, is glucose tagged and goes to high areas of metabolism. And now you're talking about a diagnostic laparoscopy. Uh, Do most patients get one of these? Not nearly as many as should. And it's a big education point that we try to push out there when we're speaking with patients or advocacy groups or or other educational events. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of based on this scary statistic. So if you take someone who has a, a gastric cancer that has basically invaded into the, the third layer, we'll call it a, a T2 lesion or higher, so they have a lymph node or a, a deeper than a T2 lesion, Okay. there's almost a 20% chance of that person having occult peritoneal disease that's not seen on a CT or PET or any other method. Mm. And that's a big deal because that's, that's a stage four diagnosis versus a stage two or three diagnosis. That's right. And, and therefore, the treatments will, will vary. Now, a CT scan will pick up metastasis. So what's the benefit of the PET scan, the PET scan? The sensitivity for picking up like an occult lymph node or an occult small metastasis um, improves a little bit with the addition of PET. So, you know, we have the luxury of, of being able to do this. Not every center can. So mm-hmm. we do a diagnostic CT and a PET for the majority of patients, as do many other centers. Okay, now, Sam, are tumor markers, which are usually proteins that are produced by cancer cells or other cells of the body in response to cancer, uh, from the blood obtained and tracked as an indication of the presence of stomach cancer? So they're not the most sensitive or specific markers, um, but we usually will check them. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly a, a CEA, carcinoembryonic antigen, um, or a CA19-9. And probably between 40 and 60% of patients will have um, elevated tumor markers. And they do generally reflect disease burden. So in someone with a stage 4 cancer and an elevated tumor marker, that the tumor marker comes down during treatment, we feel like we are probably killing tumor cells. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's 
if it's elevated, we'll often follow it, but there's a large portion that just don't have elevated markers. Now, when do you decide whether the patient is a candidate for stomach surgery or what's called neoadjuvant therapy? Neoadjuvant therapy is treatment, usually in the form of chemotherapy, that's used to shrink the tumor before surgery. The paradigm for stomach cancer has really shifted over the last 10 or 15 years. It used to be that patients were diagnosed with stomach cancer um, and then they were taken to an upfront surgery, and then either nothing else was done or they were given chemotherapy plus or minus radiation after surgery. Mm-hmm. And then through a series of several um, trials and advancements over the years, we've we've come to understand that giving some form of chemotherapy before surgery is an important part of gastric cancer care for the vast majority of patients. There are still some people who can get away with surgery alone for early stage disease, but the majority of patients need therapy before surgery. Okay, so as you said, the paradigm has shifted. We're up for a break, but when we return, we'll ask Dr. Klempner about the different types of surgical options that are available and how effective they are. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Adveritas Pharma, leading the U.S. in non-opioid pain management for certain pain conditions, while continuously seeking to deliver innovations for patients to improve patient outcomes. Visit us at A-V-E-R-I-T-A-S Pharma.com. An educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, Follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter at Dr. Paul Christo and like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. We're talking with Dr. Sam Klempner, who specializes in treating gastric and esophageal cancers. He's a hematologist and oncologist from Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, Sam, talk to us more about this neoadjuvant therapy. What exactly is it and why is it so valuable? Patients who are getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy are almost always destined for a a true surgical procedure, either a a subtotal gastrectomy or a total gastrectomy. Mm -hmm. This is kind of interesting, but the reason that we do neoadjuvant chemotherapy is because we knew from doing surgery alone that the recurrence rate was very high. But people would ask, you know, the surgeon says, I got everything out, and then two years later, the cancer's back. So how do you reconcile that? Right. We think it has to do with micrometastatic disease, so cells that are already in the lung or in another lymph node that you can't see on a CT scan. Mm -hmm. And really the goal of our neoadjuvant therapy is to kill off those micrometastases before we do a surgery to one, help the surgeon and two, increase the rate of, you know, true cures. Right. So you give patients upfront neoadjuvant chemotherapy. They then have surgery that is a gastrectomy or subtotal gastrectomy, followed by what's called adjuvant chemotherapy. Is that it? Exactly. We review the pathology reports with the patients. The majority of patients, even after neoadjuvant therapy, will still have some tumor cells left in the stomach. Mm -hmm. They're now out of the body, thanks to our surgical colleagues. But yes, the vast majority of patients who start on neoadjuvant therapy will get some form of adjuvant therapy, usually the same chemo that they got in the neoadjuvant setting. Sam, let's now talk about neoadjuvant therapy. What kinds of medications are used and when? And I think the typical neoadjuvant therapy is called FLOT, F-L-O-T. Correct. And it's an infusion of 5-FU, and then that is combined with a drug called oxaliplatin, 
and a drug called docetaxel. So three chemotherapy drugs. And the 5-FU is called 5-fluorouracil. Correct. And they're generally given for four cycles, uh, once every two weeks for four doses. Mm -hmm. And then patients will have a repeat scan. And if their tumor has not grown, um, then we will move towards a surgery. That's the, that's the standard. So you'd say flock for four rounds, then a scan, and then surgery. And then on the back end, after recovery from surgery, um, the standard would be to repeat the same chemotherapy for another four cycles. And that's based on a big trial called FLOT4. Okay, so this sequence of treatments then is really given to patients who don't have metastatic disease, right? Correct. And it's generally for people who have um, at least T2 or higher, so a locally invading tumor and or lymph node involvement. Mm -hmm. Patients who have really early stage cancers, like an early T2 cancer or a T1 cancer, these are relatively superficial cancers in the lining of the stomach. Yeah. Some of those patients can get away with, with surgery alone. Now, how painful are the surgeries? Yeah, this is, this is a big topic. So the surgery is a big operation, and it's important for patients and providers to really appreciate you know, how big of an operation this is. Mm -hmm. There are multiple chronic symptoms and, and changes after a subtotal or a total gastrectomy. Okay. The most common is dietary and its portion size. So if people eat uh, portions that are a little bit bigger than the remnant stomach can handle, or if there's a total gastrectomy, then there's actually a lot of pain associated with that and often nausea and vomiting. Um, there's pain from some of the incisional areas that often resolve, but chronic discomfort with eating is, is something that many of our patients um, deal with. And um, it does tend to improve as months pass from the surgery. But yes, I would say there is some pain associated, particularly early on. Well, it's good to know that the pain may go away. But if it persists, how do we treat it? We'll find out after the break. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Heron Therapeutics, whose mission is to improve the lives of patients by developing best-in-class medicines that address unmet medical needs. They aim to advance the standard of care for patients through therapies that bring together science and technologies with well-known pharmacology to deliver medicines that matter. Welcome back. Uh, Dr. Klempner, we mentioned before the break that surgery can lead to pain. Can you talk more about that and some of the treatments? Yeah, so it's a, it's a team team effort. Um, certainly, we work with our dietitians and our surgeons, um, primary cares, and often pain specialists when when. Uh, when we're unable to manage it ourselves. But in general, um, a lot of it is education and adjustment around um, frequency of eating and portion sizes to try to reduce the chances of those pain episodes happening. Mm -hmm. Some patients will take, you know, sort of preemptive um, pain medication prior to eating to they kind of mitigate that symptom in case it happens, and, and that's not an uncommon thing. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of interventional things that, that we do. Sometimes patients need to have dilations at the area where the anastomosis is mm -hmm. to try to make sure that the, the lumen is as big as possible to reduce the risk of pain. Yeah. Um, and then and then standard, you know, pain medications. Uh, we work our way up from anti-inflammatory medications. We generally try to avoid higher doses or chronic uses of things like ibuprofen because of the risk of uh, irritation to the lining. Mm -hmm, for sure. Now, let's delve into the survival with this type of treatment strategy. That is, 
neoadjuvant therapy, followed by surgery, followed by adjuvant therapy, which is chemotherapy. Yeah, so this is just a little bit real here, but the, um, the survival for stage two and three gastric cancers, which are most of the patients um, and the patients in the, in the FLOT4 trial, so the, the median survival is about 50 months, so around four years. Mm-hmm. That is not very good, right? Um, but it's the best that we have. And the median recurrence-free survival, um, so the time between, you know, diagnosis and, and recurrence, um, in some series is as, so, as short as, you know, a year, and in some series more like two to two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, it varies a little bit by stage. Um, but in general, the median survival for a locally advanced gastric cancer is around a little over four years. Well, it, it seems quite short. The good news, though, is that there are new targeted therapies and immunotherapies that we're going to talk about subsequently. Sam, let's go back to FLOT, F-L-O-T therapy. That's 5-fluorouracil, oxaliplatin, and docetaxel. Do any of those chemotherapeutic agents lead to pain? And how about FLOT in general? It doesn't directly cause a lot of pain, but one of the components of, of FLOT is a drug called oxaliplatin. And oxaliplatin causes a lot of neurotoxicity, so mm-hmm. um, both cold sensitivity and, and paresthesias, yeah. but also direct uh, painful neuropathy. So people who have this often have, you know, chronic symptoms. And so we're working a lot with um, providers. There's some utility to um, SNRIs and uh, drugs like gabapentin to sometimes uh, mitigate the pain, but that can be an issue for patients during FLOT, um, definitely. You mentioned SNRIs. Uh, a specific drug that we use in that category is called duloxetine, also known as Cymbalta. And in my experience, yes, that, that medication, gabapentin, sometimes pregabalin, all quite helpful uh, in reducing the pain of the peripheral neuropathy from oxaliplatin, and sometimes they've even used neurostimulation techniques to reduce this pain. That's true. There, are, you know, we, what we, the way that we try to do it as as medical oncologists is have you know conversations with the patients every time they're coming in for chemo and try to carefully assess this. Mm-hmm. And then the best way is sort of preventive. So if people are really starting to develop neurotoxicity, then we really have to think about you know, reducing the doses of some of these drugs to try to get them through the end of therapy. Right. What's challenging about this peripheral neuropathy is, number one, it's it's tough to treat, and number two, it's often chronic. Let's pivot now to molecular markers that are found on gastric tumor cells. Now you're getting into really my, my area of, of expertise. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is great. Um, so, so, yes, um, Gastric cancer is becoming a, a disease, and oftentimes we almost think of it like, you know, slices of a pie. Uh, we, it's really our duty to explore all of the underlying changes in a given patient's tumor to try to direct them towards what is likely to be the most effective therapy. And so yeah. there are standard biomarkers. And then there are emerging biomarkers, and I'm happy to expand on on both of those. Thank you, Sam. You know, we're out of time, unfortunately, and I want to thank you very much for your expertise during the show. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is great. Please join us for part three when we talk about these biomarkers. And by the way, a biomarker or molecular marker is a biological molecule that's found on tumor cells or tissues or even in the blood uh, that's a sign of 
abnormal processes that are going on in the body. And then we're going to delve into advanced gastric cancer. I mean, that unfortunately means that the cancer is metastatic. But we'll look into the newer targeted therapies like trastuzumab and trastuzumab deruxtecan, as well as the exciting realm of immunotherapies like pembrolizumab that can help disease progression. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Ty Ford. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.